This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. If you think about the people who were responsible for introducing a new generation to Hindu thought in the 1960s and 70s, you have people such as the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, of the TM movement. You have A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami of uh, the Hare Krishnas. You have uh, Muktananda, you have uh, Vishnu Devananda, my goodness, there are so many. But one person uh, in particular uh, contributed a great deal to Eastern thought here in the United States, and that is Ram Das. Ram Das wrote the seminal Be Here Now and has been a deeply profound teacher over the years. Right now, he is in the winter of his life, and he is actively dying. That is to say, he is acknowledging his impending transition from one world to the next. And that really is his dharma, if you will. That is what he is doing. He recently co-wrote a book with Mirabai Bush entitled, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying. Mirabai and Ram Das have been friends for decades, and I found this to be a fascinating work and have invited Mirabai Bush, the co-author of this book, to, uh, to join us today. Uh, if you are not familiar with Mirabai Bush, she is the founder and director of the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society and responsible for the Search Inside Yourself program at Google. And uh, she is a co-author with Ram Das on another book called Of Compassion in Action. And she lives in Massachusetts. Without further ado, let us welcome to Common Threads, Mirabai Bush. Hello, Mirabai. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Well, we're, we're pleased to have you. Uh, I think before we go into the book itself, we really need to talk about Ram Das and you, because in the many years that we've been on the air, we really have not investigated the work of Ram Das. Uh, he, uh, before he took up uh, his spiritual name of Ram Das, uh, his name uh, is uh, Richard Alpert, correct? That's right. And he had a very colorful life before uh, entering. Uh, uh, this this newer chapter of his life uh, at Harvard University. Particularly, he was a, a contemporary and a colleague of Timothy Leary. Did you know him back then? I met Ram Dass in 1970 in India. By that time, he had left Harvard and had actually been to India one other time and then come back. I met him there. I had heard Tim speak um, earlier in the 60s when he was starting to go around and um, talk about expanded consciousness. I one time heard him at Princeton. So it all, that whole movement all came out of the Ivy League, surprisingly enough. 
um, and but I met Ramdas uh, at a meditation course in a monastery in India, taught by a Burmese Buddhist teacher named Galanka. And um, I, I was, I had been teaching at uh, SUNY Buffalo, and at that time, it was in 1969 and 70 was a really you know, time of tremendous change, and I was involved in uh, anti-war work and uh, civil rights, and the campuses were just turned upside down. The police took over the city campus in Buffalo because it was so out of control with protests. And um, so I decided to take some time off and uh, went kind of, you know, in those years looking for the meaning of life. I traveled through Europe and the Middle East and into India. And the first week I was in India, I heard about this meditation course and went there. And um, uh, I heard about it from Sharon Salzberg, who became an important Buddhist teacher over these years. And she was she'd been an undergraduate at Buffalo when I was uh, a teaching fellow. And um, uh, and I met Ramdas there and. Um, I thought he'd stay in India about two weeks, and I stayed for two years. And uh, we have done many things together ever since. Well, e- even though you didn't know him personally in the early and mid-60s, uh, tell us about his history. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard, and uh, he was quite a proponent of psychedelics, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He was... Um, he taught psychology in the social psychology department there, and Tim was in that same department. And um, uh, then at some point in the pretty early 60s, actually, um, they discovered psilocybin and, and, then, uh, and then LSD. And having been in psychology, they were very interested in, in the way in which the human mind works, mind and body. And... Uh, so these drugs like showed them ways to investigate that were so much bigger and deeper than they had been able to do through scholarship on psychology that they got very excited about it and um, uh, maybe a little too excited in that Rob just got fired from Harvard for sharing, a, I think, LSD with a student. Um, but uh, he he then... Uh, he left, and he really was fine with leaving because he really wanted to explore in different ways. And so um, he did with Tim uh, lots of of, of um, experiments, and they were the first to recognize how important set and setting was for exploring the mind through psychedelics. And all of which is become is really interesting at the present moment because all this new research is being done at NYU and Hopkins and being written about in a great new book by Michael Pollan. Um, uh, But that's what they were doing then. And then after a while, because drugs are so hard on the mind and body, uh, uh, Ramdas wanted to see if he could find a way to uh, continue to understand the well, 
um, the psychologically one to understand the mind, but spiritually one to understand uh, why we're here. <laughs> so uh, he traveled to India to see if he could learn some of the practices that had been there for thousands of years and see if he could explore in that way. And so first time he went to India, he um, met the person who became his guru and mine, Neem Karoli Baba in the mountains in northern India, and uh, stayed with him for a long time and, uh, and in the process learned meditation and yoga and other, um, other practices. And then came back to this country and wrote, he gave a series of lectures in New York and that somebody, uh, this is so dated, it turned out a person had, took um, notes in shorthand and then transcribed those lectures, and which eventually became Be Here Now, um, which was also hard to appreciate now, and there's so many books. But um, there wasn't anything written about the possibility of incorporating these practices into Western American life. And um, so Be Here Now was just greeted with an incredible reception. It sold, it's still selling. sold more than two million copies. Uh, I'm curious, when you say that uh, the drugs were so hard on, on the brain and the body, uh, did he himself experience that? Did he wake up one day and said, you know, I just, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's, it's hurting my psyche. It's hurting my body. Yeah. I don't know if it was one day, you know, and I, I want to say that they had, they took hundreds of trips. It wasn't like most people had explored with psychedelics. And um, so, you know, yes, after a while he said, there's got to be a way that is gentler and more sustainable um, for mind and body. Than, which is not to say that, you know, that, that they have never found that, that those psychedelics ever, like, directly harm the body or harmed the mind, but they're exhausting. So <laughs> you just wanted to find a way to um, lead a more stable, is that the word, um, a, a life that was more... Grounded? Say, grounded, yeah, calm, stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, than going up and, as he would say, going up and down all the time, as you do on on drugs. You, you know, it's interesting because I don't have a, a experience with psychedelics, um, but all I know is what I've seen on television in the movies, and when people are tripping, uh, you know, they're they're rolling around on the floor and they're just doing these <laughs> bizarre things. And then I read in the book we're talking about walking each other home. He he relays the relates the story of him going to his mother's funeral after taking <laughs> uh, a psychedelic LSD or something, and. I didn't realize you can actually go through normal, mundane experiences and not, you know, start crawling on the floor. Or yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that was those um, movies and so on were all part of when 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 they made LSD um, illegal, then 
you know, they'd stopped all the really important research that was going on and that actually showed what it, you know, can and can't do. And um, so then the only way to talk about it, 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 you know, came over time was in these exaggerated forms. Um, yeah, Ramdas did, but, but he and Tim, they were so comfortable in those states. I mean, most people who did like a few psychedelic trips wouldn't probably be comfortable taking LSD for a funeral. But they they could navigate that world so gracefully that he, he could do that. And, and indeed, you know, had a lot of insight about dying through that. Uh, tell us a little bit, I, I, I think I know the story maybe third or fourth hand about uh, him giving acid to uh, Neem Karoli Baba. Yeah, I wasn't there, but um, he did, I think it was in his first visit to, to see him. He uh, did, he gave him a, I don't remember the numbers, but he gave him a, like the amount that you'd be like three normal doses or something. And um, what he witnessed was that Neem Crowley Baba took took it and then just sat there and didn't appear to change in any way over the following couple of hours. And, I mean, Ramdas's understanding was that because we call him Maharaji, affectionate name, because Maharaji was... Um, uh, in an in that expanded state um, already and all the time, that um, it didn't make any difference. The insight level that comes with a psychedelic didn't really make any difference for him because he was living in that world. Not to say he was living in a, a world of of um, hallucination, but just that um, he whatever arose just was what was there in the moment for him and was not, he didn't see it any differently from anything else. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Mirabai Bush. She co-authored the book, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying, and she uh, co-authored this with Ram Das, who we're speaking about right now. So you you met Ram Das in India. You became a disciple of Neem Karoli Baba in, in the early 70s I think you mentioned, right? Yes. When you when you went over there to learn how to uh, how to meditate. Uh tell us what it was like for a, an independent young American woman to enter into discipleship. Was that was that at all a concern to you? Was it too yeah. not liberating, yeah. if you will, from a, a more <laughs> mundane sense? Yeah, it. I mean, it was in that I was. I mean, I'd grown up in New York. I, I was quite independent, and I was in my last year of my PhD, and and I had just come through, you know, the sixties, and and. Um, feminism and, you know, questioning authority, all of it. And, um, yeah, and I first did this meditation course, which confirmed uh, those tendencies in that 
um, it was with a Buddhist teacher, and he said, um, you do not need a guru. Nobody needs a guru. All you need is uh, what is sometimes called a spiritual friend or somebody um, who, on the path who has been doing this uh, somewhat longer than you have and who can teach you these practices of meditation. Um, that's really all you need. Um, you, and community so that you can talk among yourselves about what you're going through. But you do not need a guru. And at that time, I think in India, there are a lot of, I mean, it's a deep uh, tradition in India. I mean, every family has a guru. So, of course, there were, you know, abuses among gurus. And and he, Goenka would say, you know, don't get mixed up with gurus. So that, I had my, you know, my Western upbringing, and then I had... been in this monastery with him for a few months, and we've been meditating nonstop. And uh, so I thought, great, I, I, I wasn't looking for a guru anyhow, but I'm in India. I'm glad to know I don't need a guru. <laughs> and then um, when we left that monastery, Ramdas and I and others uh, uh, who were with us there, some of whom, uh, like Krishnadas, who became the great kirtan singer, and uh, Danny Goleman, who wrote the book on emotional intelligence. There were a whole group of us. And um, we, were, um, we were on a bus on our way to Delhi, and um, we, we went through Allahabad, where there's, these, there's a sacred confluence of rivers. And as we were going by that spot, uh, someone looked out the window and said, there's Maharaji. And... I, I had just been reading, we, Be Here Now was published while we were in India, and there was only one copy, and uh, it was being passed around, and I had just received it on the bus. And I was reading the part about him and thinking, well, that's lovely, and, uh, you know, I'm glad Maharaji met this person. And but, but the book said how difficult it would ever be to find him again. And I thought, and I, I don't have any interest in this. And then everybody kind of spilled. There he was standing by the side of the road. And um, everybody spilled off the bus. And, of course, uh, Ramdas was in ecstasy. And um, I was one of the last off the bus. And as I was getting off the bus, I looked at him. And something happened. (laughs) And when I got to the bottom step, I just, like, fell at his feet. That was another thing I thought, bowing. I would never bow. Um, And his energy field was amazing. And he, but, and I'd been meditating all this time, and I'd had glimpses of what it could be like to really be, like, open and awake and, you know, free from all the stuff that I carry around um, and all the attachments and uh, desires and when I saw him I felt like he embodied fully those tiny glimpses I had had of what's possible as a human and um, I just I was just so like it seemed like such a uh, blessing to be in the presence of such a being and uh, so then you know, later we all went and stayed at his ashram, and uh, 
many things happened over the two years I spent there with him and with Ramdas and others. But um, yeah, the question became irrelevant after. It wasn't like I had a real answer for why do I think I need a guru, but um, it it just wasn't relevant. One time, uh, uh, we asked Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan teacher in this country, we asked him uh, if if it's all within, if wisdom is all within, if you can discover everything through meditation practice and so on, what do you need a guru for? He said, you need a guru to tell you that it's all within. (laughs) (laughs) That was my experience. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because about uh, maybe going on two years ago, we had uh, a friend of yours uh, on this program, Larry Brilliant, Oh, I guess, a good friend, yes. who was also with Neem Karoli Baba. Yeah, exactly. And he uh, was was quite a resistor to yes, the guru relationship. Mm-hmm. I think his, his wife just fell right into it, if I recall Yes, correctly. I took her there, actually. <laughs> and I met her at another meditation course and took her to um, <laughs> to Maharaji. And he was a, he definitely, I mean, was a resistor in that same description as as I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. That that's uh, that's very interesting how that how that works. Um, t- to the book, uh, uh, walking each other home. Ramdas approached you. Am I correct? Did I read that in the book that he approached you? Hey, we need to do this. Yeah. Well, we um, had. I'm part of a foundation called Love Serve Remember that you know exists to help promote promote, no, uh, make available uh, Ram Dass's teachings and Maharaji's wisdom. And um, so and so we have lots of conversations about how to do all that. And at one point, Ram Dass was saying that he thought that um, he would like to make his teachings on dying more available. And he's been saying the words and talking about dying since Be Here Now. I went back and read it, and it's so interesting, and in, verbally, it's kind of all there already. But um, what he was saying what he, is that over time, he has, of course, lived into these words in a different way, as um, to some extent we all do. He's 87 now, um, and he's also been through a lot of suffering on the way because 20 years ago he had a massive stroke and he's dealt with, you know, the loss of abilities to do many things and lots of pain and lots of humbling, you know, being in a wheelchair all the time and not being able to do all the things he could do before, especially speaking. Um, he has aphasia, which he can, you know, he still talks, but there are long pauses between um, his words. So, um, so at first we were going to put we're going to gather all his teachings from talks and uh, books and so on and put them together, and I was going to write an introduction to it. And um, so we, I did that in a draft, <laughs> and I wrote a kind of memoiry introduction, like saying some of what I just told you, how we met and so on. And, um, and then uh, I gave it to Ramdas, and he read it, and he said, I I like your part better than my part. 
what, what that turned out to mean was that um, he, yeah, he was tired of reading it the way he had said it for so long, and he knows that he knows it in a different way now, but he can't write like he used to. So um, we decided then that we would do it uh, as conversations between us because he finds with the aphasia that he's much better able to convey what he knows now um, in that more informal way. So that's what we did, and it was so great. We just sat in his room, turned on, I just turned on my little recorder on my iPhone, and uh, we talked about what we know and don't know about dying and how how what we know about dying is changes how we live our lives and um and then we thought about what could be useful for other people people who are being with loved ones who are dying um people who are afraid of dying people who are grieving a friend who's died um and so we put together everything we knew and 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 did it in this form of conversations and brought some other people in from time to time and um uh, and walking each other home is a phrase Ramdas is often used about you know what are we doing here because we're always always busy asking about the meaning of life you know so <laughs> he would often say we're just walking each other home uh, very quickly, we, we, we only have a, a couple of minutes left, but answer me this. Do you find that it is a great spiritual exercise of patience to collaborate with someone who is so challenged in communication? Uh, you have to, a, a conversation with Ram Das, I'm assuming, something that might take two or three minutes with you and me, uh, could take, what, maybe an hour? Is that is that yeah. correct? Yes, but I didn't experience it as having to be patient because I've been with him a lot, and I I now just naturally know how to just drop into that silence when, and wait, um, and it's pretty comfortable <laughs> and because I know it's, it's there's no anxiety around it. Like I'm not worried. Will he find the word or? Are we go? You know, are we going to have enough material? <laughs> um, I just know that when he's quiet, that out of that silence is will come usually something quite beautiful. And I like being in silence with him. You know, I've done years of meditation, and and uh, so it's it was really easy for me. And in fact, I mean, it's a great way to have. You know, we we said we would only we'd be utterly honest with ourselves and with each other about what we know and don't know about all this, and uh, that coming out of that silence is a great way to do that. You know, you're not. We didn't. There wasn't any feeling that we needed to. Uh, certainly not impress each other, sure. but but uh, even like talk in full paragraphs that sometimes. It would be fragments, and then we'd kind of explore what that meant. Uh, Mirabai, we're down to the wire right now, but this is a great conversation. I'm hoping you can join us next week, and we'll continue this. Great. I'd love to. 
Thank you so much. You're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today has been Mirabai Bush. We're talking about the book that she co-authored with Ram Das, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Mirabai Bush. She is the co-author of the book, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying. And she wrote this with Ram Das, one of the great spiritual voices since the 1960s. Ram Das is quite incapacitated now, but he still teaches through his very life and the process of letting go in this final chapter. So we welcome once again uh, Mirabai Bush. Very quickly about Mirabai, she is the founder and director of the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society and responsible for the Search Inside Yourself program at Google. And aside from the book we're talking about today, she co-authored with Ram Das of Compassion in Action in 1995. She lives in Massachusetts, and we have her here now. Hello, Mirabai. Hi. (laughs) Happy to be here. Happy to be back. Good, good, excellent. Last week, uh, to, to recap very quickly for someone who may not have been with us last week, So you are a contemporary and a friend and associate and colleague of Ram Das, who is, uh, uh, as I just said in my introduction, one of the great spiritual voices, particularly of Hindu thought, uh, uh, since the 1960s when he uh, uh, spent time in India. He met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and came back and has been teaching. Uh, And now, now he suffered a massive stroke uh, about 20 years ago. Has it been that long? Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And as, as I also said, he is now living an example of detachment and of, of well, of going home. Um, do you, you wouldn't say, or maybe you would, that at this point, <laughs> at this point, his transition is, is imminent. Do you, do you no, know? No, I actually would like to say that it's not because I was casually said in other contexts, oh, well, Ram does 87, he's pretty close, you know. But he's actually, um, he's paralyzed on one side for all these years, but he's, uh, healthy as as healthy as you could be and um he is still teaching we're doing a retreat in uh, maui in december um for 350 people um so he's still but he can't he can't speak like he used to and he can't um uh, he doesn't have the energy he used to have but he he still sees people and um you know does the occasional skype talk and so on yeah, he's he he's wiser and and spiritually more vibrant than ever, which is pretty great. That that is wonderful to to hear, and I would also recommend, uh, aside from reading your book, uh, that that documentary uh, that is oh, out yeah, right now. Oh yeah, it's really nice called Going Home. Yes, it's on Netflix, and it's a great compliment for the book because it was filmed just a year or so ago, and it shows Ram Dass now in Maui, and it's beautiful. It's, it's short. And um, but it's very uh, uh, inspiring. Yeah, he, he he certainly seems to be delightfully content in his surroundings yes, yes, and with his yes. life. Yes. You know, one thing I learned in the book that I never knew before is that he's gay. Yeah, I he he. He's been gay for a long time now, since he was born, <laughs> right? But um, he, but but because he's eighty-seven, he grew up in the forties and fifties when it was really difficult, and he went to a prep school here in Massachusetts, and uh, they the boys were like hard on him, and um, so he he underplayed it for you know a, some part of his life, and. Yeah, and in the book, it was really during the time of the AIDS epidemic that um, that he realized that it was important to make that statement. And also, it in the book, he tells about, and he tells this really for the first time, how he um, he was drawn to the men who were dying from AIDS and you know he felt connected to them because of his his own homosexuality and so he sat by the beds of a lot of people and he he said um they were they were dying of AIDS um and, and they were they were not afraid of AIDS they were afraid of dying and he said and I wasn't afraid of dying at all but I was afraid of getting AIDS so we had this great connection, but he sat with many people in New York and San Francisco in the 80s, and that's really what developed in him the ability to be with people who are dying and to understand how to how to be what he calls a loving rock for the person who's dying, and also to learn during that process about your own fears of dying and and that, as he would say, dying is completely safe. At some point in the book, and and I reread this a couple of times to make sure I 
was correct, so maybe you can tell me if I'm correct. You referred to yourselves, meaning you, Ramdas, and others, as monks. Is it? Is that is that correct? Because you lived in. A, so, I think I did use. I think that was that was in the beginning, and I. But we that was the only model. We, well, we were living in a monastery at the time, but it was it was uh, you know not permanent. And uh, so during that time, we were uh, living in silence and eating simply and meditating all day. But um, we did not live as monks once we left there. Okay, that's <laughs> I, I, I assume that that might be the case because yeah. obviously you went on to have a family, and I did, and and uh, uh, then I'm assuming that Ramdas at at some point. Uh, lived the life of life of a householder, and perhaps was involved in relationships with men. And he was he was in, he had a, a few longish relationships, and but he never. Um, uh, Maharaji told him Neem Karoli Baba, his guru, told him uh, to not have a center or an ashram, or and Ramdas took that to mean that he should just. Be, not settle down and so he didn't he traveled i mean he would give like a 90 city tour of talks um he traveled but but um there were a couple of us who were householders me with my husband and 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 larry brilliant and his wife garija and so ramdas would always keep a kind of little room or apartment in our houses, and then when he needed to stop for a while, he would do that. But he never actually um, lived as a real householder. I see. He just so, kept uh, teaching. Uh, so sort of a combination of a, a of a transient uh, rishi, if you will. Yeah. And but someone who was still a part of society as well. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yes. That, that's fascinating. Uh, there's something in the book that uh, I, I find interesting because you still identify as a disciple of Neem Karoli Baba, and you were talking about the the two different points of view from which you both come. When you identify Ram Das as uh, a theist, or he identifies himself as a theist, and you said you're an agnostic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you said you believe in the possibility of God, and I, I found that interesting because if you just said I'm an agnostic, I would have just kept on reading and not thought about it. But when you say uh, I'm an agnostic, but I believe in the possibility of God, it, to me it it it's a little confusing because if I had uh, read, if you had said. I am an agnostic, but I believe in the love of God or believe in the joy of God. That would have been confusing. When I think of possibility, I mean, poss- God can be just nothing but possibility. And I'm just wondering <laughs> if if that was the line you were going or something else. <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, well, really what I meant was that I, I didn't mean I was an atheist. But, but just that I don't know that there's a God, but I, 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 but I do know some things about 
interconnection of all life and the sacredness of all life, which some people would say was the presence of God. Um, but I don't... I mean, I grew up Catholic. I don't know if um, there is a being that, as Christians describe him, and I don't know as... Maharaj, he never... He never asked us to become Hindus. He came from the Hindu tradition, but he was very... He did not encourage us to become Hindus. Um, but Hindus have many gods, which are, you know... I enjoy the, the kind of stories and also the idea of the, the, all their different presences, different ones manifest, different um, virtues. But but I don't know it, and so I'm. I feel comfortable with that. And as well, you should. I don't know if that helps anymore, but no, it does. The best I can do. No, that's absolutely fine. Uh, now, when it comes to afterlife, though, I, I think it's quite clear from the book. Ram Das does believe in rebirth. And I, I would gather also believes in final liberation. I'm not. I'm not sure. I found the final liberation part, but he, he talks about future lives and things like that. Yes. Um, and I'm. I, I'm not sure if you concur with that, or if you if you have presented a a different possibility, if as far as after. I think comes. it's probable. I th- <laughs> or more than probable that we have many lives. But again. I don't know that we do. It's not like I, you know, have ever experienced my past lives. or um, And so, and the reason I brought up those differences between us, because I thought it might be helpful for the reader to understand that we were not in this book putting forward a way that one needs to believe um, in order to be engaged in this conversation. Right, that, that is quite clear. I, I appreciate the, the diversity of thought that is in the book, and I, I, I commend you for it. Because so often when people co-author, uh, that's what they do. It's, they, they essentially speak with one voice. But this yeah. book truly is a conversation. And I will take this opportunity to remind people that you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads, I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Mirabai Bush. She co-authored the book, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying, with Ram Das. Uh, you mentioned growing up Catholic, and that reminds me to ask you about the laundry chute. I think that's a <laughs> fascinating <laughs> that, account. <laughs> that wasn't my story, but it I know, I so know, but you, you added it. <laughs> I know it's true. <laughs> okay, I was in Catholic school from preschool to Georgetown graduate school. So, <laughs> and I, growing up, I lived across the street from the convent, and so I used to um, spend time in the convent with the nuns. And and of course, I was with them always, all day long. <laughs> and it's exactly the kind of thing that would have happened, and it did happen to, to the person who told the story, <laughs> but. Um, there's something so true about the way that nuns whom I adored, they were my role models, but they would scare us to 
scare us to death <laughs> to um, convince us to be good when we were growing up. I want to do, um, I was thinking that, you know, I know your listeners uh, appreciate music and folk music, and so when I was, uh, I didn't know what you were going to ask me, but oh, I... The, 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 laundry shoot, the, I... The, the, the laundry shoot story. <laughs> I'm going to read you a different story. What? Pardon me? <laughs> now, this one, uh, I can read that too, but um, I thought you'd like this one. Okay. Each, each chapter is only a couple of pages, and yeah. this one's only one page, and it's called Last Leaf on the Tree. Tonight we're going to, and the whole book is written in this mem- my voice, memoir voice. Tonight we're going to a Save a Foundation concert to honor Ramdas at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center. I give Ramdas time to rest and to visit with Joan Baez, who will sing at the concert. After their chat, before leaving for the sound check, Joan says goodbye to us. It was like a visit with the sun, she tells us. She's beaming. At the concert, she dedicates Tom Waits' song, Last Leaf, to Ramdas. I'm the last leaf on the tree. The autumn took the rest, but they won't take me. I'll be here through eternity. If you want to know how long, if they cut down this tree, I'll show up in a song. <laughs> great. That is great. And and when Tom Waits heard that we wanted to use it, because, you know, you have to get permission for all these things, he said, I don't want anything. I would be honored to be in this book. So <laughs> oh, I like that one. That's very good. That's very good. Okay, now, the laundry chute. <laughs> Come on. Okay. <laughs> People are wondering, what is that? What could that possibly be? <laughs> um, what happened was we were sitting around the table, uh, and we decided that each of us would talk about, um, it was me and Ram Dass and, and his caretakers, um, and we were, decided to share our first experiences of death because we were exploring why, where the fear of death comes from. And we talked a lot about the way in which death is hidden in the culture in general, and certainly hidden from children. And um, most people die in, in hospitals, uh, and even if they die at home, the children are usually kept away. Um, and so, uh, and so, some people talked about their, and this is true for many people. Their first experience of death was what was with a pet. Um, and and some with grandparents, but um, and just exploring that, like, you know, this being was here and now they're gone. What? <laughs> so, um, but, but one person, Dasima, who uh, manages Ramdas's life, she she um, like me grew up in Catholic schools, and she talked about how um, well, first of all she'd been to a funeral where it was a horrible story of some child some or preteen, I think, had burned down his cousin's house and three children were laid out. And she um, I had to go through that and seeing these waxy children. And, um, and then the nun took, uh, their nun took them to the convent and she opened up uh, a closet and in the closet was a laundry chute. I don't know if they have those anymore, but you used to be able to. I have one in my house. 
in the laundry chute, and it would go down to the basement where the laundry usually was. Yeah. And um, she, but so they she had she held each one of them over the laundry chute, which they could see was like this. It, it was like a tunnel going downward, in and then it was dark at the bottom, you know. And uh, you know, she told them that if they weren't good, that she would put them down the ton, down the chute. And they'd end up in purgatory. So, oh, my God. Needless to say, they were very good after that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I would be, too. <laughs> oh, that, it's, it's funny, but uh, also, of course, quite sad that, that this is the, the kind of training that someone would receive. Uh, yeah, but, you know, um, this isn't about dying, but about Catholic school. When I think back on it... Those, there were 50 children. I was in New Jersey. There were 50 kids in every class with one nun. And we were pretty much perfectly behaved. <laughs> I'm not saying it's the best form of education, um, the idea that you can't talk when you're in school. <laughs> but um, still, I realize why they did it. No, I, I <laughs> believe me. I, I understand that uh, that discipline... Can, wild though yeah it is now, when you think it, about it. it really yeah. is there's there's uh, also something that is in the book i'm paraphrasing right now but uh the medical model of death is often that it's looked upon as a failure uh as opposed to a natural transition and and yeah. i i remember something that uh, you you might uh, appreciate um when my brother was dying uh, he um, he was he had a stroke and he was filled with infections that uh, the antibiotics just could not touch and he was just languishing and uh, I knew that his his thoughts because uh, we you know I was his advocate and I knew because we've had several conversations that he never wanted to be in in a state like that or or live in a in a, com- a severely compromised state. Um, and uh, there was this one doctor in the, on the uh, ICU ward who was really, really trying to push for more and more treatment, more and more treatment. And other physicians were kind of scratching their head and, and telling me uh, the exact opposite. No, it's time to let go. And I was perfectly willing to let go because, again, I had these previous conversations with my brother. I knew what he wanted. Um, but this one doctor was just really trying to encourage us to hang on and hang on. And he did that uh, uh, until my brother took a very serious, uh, he had a very serious setback, which which I was actually grateful for because then he got on board with with everyone else saying, yeah, maybe this is time. But I was talking to somebody afterwards and they said, he was he was uh, head of the ICU, and he wants to keep the survival statistics positive. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, doctors, even at the deeper level than the kind of whatever that is, institutional ambition, uh, you know, um, uh, defaulting to what can be measured, et cetera. <laughs> um, but doctors take a vow to, you know, do no harm, to basically heal people and <laughs> keep them alive. <laughs> and um, 
so I, it's hard, but it's real. That's really changing. <laughs> Not that they don't want to keep us alive anymore, but um, but that uh, you know appreciation, of, especially the end of life care for old people. It's you know it's ridiculous, um, and I say that as an old person. <laughs> but um, I think Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, has really helped that part of the conversation. Uh, and also, what's, what's interesting is, you probably know this, that if you look at the advanced directives of many physicians, I mean, they want to go out fast. They, they do not want <laughs> yes. to end up in the same position as many patients do. As they have watched, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's, it's like, okay, you know, if, I, if this happens to me, just put a pillow over my head and call it good. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that's the, 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 the attitude that I see uh, in, uh, in, in, after speaking to physicians um, uh, over, the, over the past few years. Uh, so, yeah, and it's getting more and more complicated because they have more and more ways of, you know, of keeping us alive, although, you know, not vital, but alive, you know. Exactly, exactly. And, and I noticed going through this, uh, this uh, uh, adventure, if you will, with my brother, how it's just one th- they ask you permission for one thing, one thing, one th- you know, another thing, another thing, another thing. First of all, uh, you know, it, it, can we just put in a, 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 a feeding tube temporarily? Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's temporary, sure. If we can do this, oh, it's just temporary. Then all of a sudden you've got this bloated being in a bed with tubes sticking out of every orifice. It's, wait a minute, I, 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 thought, I thought we weren't going to do this. But, yeah. you know, if they, if, they, if they keep saying, no, 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 there's, there's still an opportunity. He's, 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 he's not in that, that bad a shape and then, until he's not. So it's, a, it's an interesting process. Um, how uh, very quickly we only have three minutes left, um, but can you tell me briefly uh, th- uh, about the transitions of family members that th- you know that you've gone through? Uh, well, the most recent was my older sister. I was thinking about her as you were talking about your brother, um, and she had cancer, but she also had dementia, which complicates things even further as you probably know um but and with her it was it was interesting she was pretty uh she was she could operate pretty well till the end but um except she had no short-term memory at all and she and but you know i actually saw her still changing and still learning and still kind of becoming kind of kinder and maybe wiser. It, even, you know, in the last days, weeks, months of of her life, when she her body was fading away and her mind was, uh, you know, demented. And, but there was still, uh, she still was, I don't know, like, I said, it it somehow shook a little my sense that I kind of thought before, oh, if I get dementia, I don't want to be around for that. I, that's not how I want you to remember me. I, you know, I won't really be here with dementia. And so, but actually, 
she was really there, only in a different way. And um, and I felt like she was still going through things she needed to go through before she died. And that was very, uh, it was a reminder of the great mystery of the whole thing, you know. Sure. We don't know. Mirabai, we're down to the wire again for this edition of Common Threads, but thank you so very much for this week and last week as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I love being with you. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Mirabai Bush, and we're talking about Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying, a book that she co-authored with Ram Das. Please join us again next week here on WGVU.